Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you're new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first and our first hour, we answer your questions on media and virtual events. And on our second hour, we tend to spend a little bit more time on a subject. And today we'll be speaking with Renee Ritchie, YouTube creator liaison. So if there's ever a day that you want to get your questions in early, that day is today. Speaking of questions, Bill, let's get into it. Thanks, Liberty. Here's our first one today. Joe Phillips in Murphy, North Carolina, is up with building an ATEM Extreme ISO SDI kit into a Pelican case. We'll have microconverters for HDMI and MultiView 4 HD feeding the display in the lid. I need to make custom SDI cable lengths. What connectors, cable types, and brands would you recommend? Go ahead, Jason. Okay, there's there's like the normal person way, and then there's the Alex way, and I'll leave the Alex way to Alex. Um, Neutrix rear twist uh, cables are are fantastic if you need to make your own, and um, and getting getting the cable off and um, threaded just right is the trick. Alex, <clears throat> sorry about that. Yeah, the um, what you're looking for, it, we typically for most of our smaller kits will build or most most are shorter runs under seventy feet. We'll often use the 24 gauge Clark cable. So Clark, it's a, it is a, I mean, we buy it from Clark cable. It's, um, and it is a uh, shielded, I think it's a 6G uh, cable. We don't usually worry about 12G that much because if they're short runs and they're 6G, they'll still work. <laughs> so, so they yeah, just fine. Uh, so you don't have to do 12G cables for three feet, you know, if you're building out your kit. Um, and we get the 24 gauge because they are really small. And so it's, it's, uh, it, it really affects weight. Uh, it also just affects that how easy it is to move through the system. Um, attaching those, uh, we use the, as uh, Jason said, the rear twist, um, uh, uh, Neutrik rear twist cables. They're life-changing. <laughs> like, like, like I, I literally at one point just threw all everything else away. Well, actually, I donated it to a local college. Um, so I just literally got rid of everything that didn't have the rear twist because um, when you have regular SDI, termination the problem you get into is is that you you have to use a trump a trumpeter uh, which is this long this kind of long thing with a little thing on the end to turn it it's a lot of lever and so what it does is that as you use it all the time to take things in and out you're putting pressure on your sdi connections inside of your devices by doing it by hand you to put a lot less pressure on it it's also just a lot easier to get in and out of those things you can connect all the connectors on a 40 by 40 router when you're using the rear twists you can also change all their colors so we use the resistor code to change the color. So if we have channel one, it's you know black, channel two is brown, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we use the resistor code to understand that. You can get multiple uh, colors of cables. Um, I've had ones, for instance, I built a kit where we had um, all the, everything leaving the router was red and everything uh, going into the router was blue. Um, so it was like a little heart, you know, that, that was doing its thing. Um, and, uh, but that, that way, when you're looking at the cables and the ends, you can actually tell a lot about what they are just by grabbing onto them. Um, the what I would recommend, especially for a small gauge cable, is getting a powered stripper rather than using a you know one that you would do by hand. Um, I think that Mark Mark followed my, uh, my my guidance, and Mark, that's worked out well for you as far. Yeah, Mark Mark's raising his thumb. Um, it really cha changes the how fast you can make cables and how accurately you can make them. Coastal cables is, uh, or coastal uh, is it coastal cables? Yeah, I think is the one that makes the powered ones that we use. You can get a desktop mounted one or a handheld one. I mostly use the handheld one, but we at the office, I think, now have a desktop one that we, that the guys are using, um, and that will make the three cuts that you need. Um, the other thing is, is that I don't know if I have it sitting right in front of me. Usually, I do. 
because I'm usually doodling with it. Um, I use a nylon ended um, tweezers that I got on Amazon. I took one end off and I use that to, to, to pull the um, one of the shields off, the, the small shield off. Um, and then when you buy the Neutrik rear twists, um, there's an odd little thing that looks like a little um, spring. Uh, don't throw that away. <laughs> I did for a long time. I was like, I don't know what this is for. And I put it down somewhere, I had a little pile of them. Turns out that's the thing that splays open your shield. So you just, you just, you just grab it and turn it and your little shield, your little metal shield will go whoop and open up. I have to build a whole bunch of new cables. I'm switching my system here to uh, SDI. So I'm going to be doing that in after hours. I'll let you know probably later this week um, that you'll see me making SDI cables and and, and very slowly. I'm not a very fast SDI. I'm not like JJ is much faster. I am like three times faster, um, but I can, but I'll, I'll muddle my way through it. I remember JJ doing that. That was fun. Yeah. Courtney. Um, I agree with everything that uh, Alex said, except maybe uh, I wouldn't go to the expense of doing the rear twist. If this is going to be a permanent installation inside the case. And once you put those connectors on, you're probably never going to take them off again. So the, uh, the regular, regular, uh, Crimpon connectors for the uh, Belden cable or for the mini. Uh, make sure you get the right connectors for that mini coax. And I would suggest also the mini coax. I think uh, uh, Beldum in a plenum is a 1855P um, is the number on it. Uh, make sure you get the connectors designed for that specific cable because uh, crimping them on will be bad if you have the wrong diameter collar on it. Uh, and the smaller cables be easy, especially if they're going to be undergoing bending, opening and closing the case, going up into the lid. Uh, so it'll make it easier and make it a little more robust and won't put as much pressure on those cables when you close that case. And Alex? And I have to admit that I uh, change my kits all the time. <laughs> Very rarely do I have a kit that stays the same uh, for, for a long period of time. I'm always like, oh, we, there's, every couple of months, we, we tend to tear things apart and put them back together. So uh, so that, 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 that's how I, why I approach the rear twists so um, uh, intently. And Mark. So if you do go to the expense of uh, one of the coastal uh, automated cutters, if you send them a piece of cable and a connector, they'll preset all the blades to the right depth. So all you do is just start using it. It's great. Next question. Our next question comes to us from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul this time says, is there a way on an ATEM Mini to just show four equal size or eight HDMI feeds without the preview and program and media player off slash stop and cam slash mic screens? Go ahead, Jason. On the ATEM Mini? No. Courtney? Yeah, right. On the bigger ATEMs, you can uh, arrange the multi-view. Your possible way to do that was put a multi-view in between uh, before the Mini and pull out a multi-view signal uh, that is arranged the way you want. And Decimator makes some, and of course Blackmagic makes multi-view adapters that you can put four, four or more into up to eight SDI inputs into. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, and you're not going to get a nine by nine. Uh, you're going to get four by four, or sixteen by sixteen, or two on the top and four on the bottom. You know, because you're if, if you're using the larger switchers, you, when you sub, you're just basically subdividing quadrants. And Serge, if people want to see uh, how it's looking on my ATEM Mini, my multi-view, it's like that. I have the program, I have the preview, and I have all my eight inputs with the labels. That way I'm able to see it. I know it's not exactly what Paul is asking for, but it's uh, that's what I have. Next question. 
comes to us from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Josh says, DaVinci resolves H.264, H.264 encoding or other compression exports does not have the best reputation. What are the telltale signs of a poor encoding job? What should you pay attention to when judging the quality of a video encode job? Jesse? Uh, judging video in code isn't something that you have to do uh, qualitatively. You can do it quantitatively. And the best way to do that is to put your export above your original timeline and use a difference composite mode to uh, to see how different those two are. And I've got a very quick demo teed up. We have uh, water running next to rocks. The rocks are chosen because they will compress well. The water is chosen because it will compress poorly. Uh, here's a difference, Matt, with the exact same footage on top of... Uh, the exact same footage, which yields a black frame. Here's um, ProRes over the raw footage, which you'll see a little bit of uh, of artifacting. When we get into H.264 single pass encoding, you'll see more artifacting. And H.264 multi-pass encoding will reveal uh, less artifacting. Thanks, Mitchell. Great demo, Jesse. I like that. I don't think I can top that, but the things they just uh, sort of spy right away is look at gradients. Uh, gradients will band um, other things uh, if you see some blockiness. Um, and and like you, like J uh, Jesse was showing there, if you got like water or leaves or a sporting event, um, they're really tough on compressors, particularly in that area. You can see all kinds of weird things going on there, some of the blockiness, and sometimes micro stutters uh, accompany the whole thing. And Alex? Yeah, and uh, Jesse, like I, uh, obviously collect um, what we call widowmakers. <laughs> so these are these are these are frames that we shoot, and I I'll be walking around somewhere, and I'll go, oh, that's a good one, and I'll shoot trees waving back and forth. I'll shoot um, ocean. I like I shoot a lot of ocean reference um, because, and I try to fill the whole frame with water uh, with a couple couple little rocks that will that will that will do well, but but really just a big ocean, anything that has lots of things changing at one time then throw those on. What you're looking for oftentimes is the macro blocking. Um, so you're looking for little blocks around around the edges, aliasing, which is what actually Resolve is really ten, tends to do. So in graphics, uh, when it's compressing, um, especially, you'll see little aliasing along those edges. And that tends to be something that Resolve doesn't handle as well as other other compressors do. Um, change in color. So you'll you'll see a change in the gamma, change in saturation, change it. Those are those are things that are pretty common. Um, and uh, and overall, just a, a chunkiness <laughs> that you can see um, in something. And I will say that um, love resolve, uh, but it's H.264 compression. If I'm going to deliver it to a client that they're actually going to use for review, I use H.264 all the time, and that's what it's designed for in Resolve. Resolve is assuming that you really meant to do. You're going to deliver this much nicer, and we're just going to go real fast. So it compresses very very fast. But it's there for review. Um, if you really care about it, you're going to export it out and then put it through something like compressor or media com or, or in media encoder, um, and give it some time. Uh, time is, you know, we think that eventually you you don't use time, but time really helps you get higher quality bits, you know, out of it. So two pass, and this is for if you're actually going to deliver it somewhere. But <clears throat> running two pass, you have to remember that the movies that you watch when you download something on Apple TV, um, the movies that you watch there that you bought took two or three days to to compress like two or three days with very powerful machines that are sitting there finding the over and over again finding the best in code for every scene um and so uh so time is 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 definitely still something that's used to get the best compression out of it um and so you you know when you when you care about something and you're going to deliver something you care about let it run 
you know, um, put turn all the knobs up a little bit and let it run for a little while. Courtney? Yep, he covered most of it. Multi, multi-pass compression is best. Uh, one good way to test is to have two moving scenes and to do a slow dissolve between the two of them so that you're getting a combination of both moving scenes that's changing constantly uh, throughout that dissolve, and that's where you'll see your macro blocking show up. And Mitchell? Yeah, best practice would be to uh, export uh, DaVinci to a mezzanine format like ProRes and then apply it with a compressor or media encoder and do exactly what the, the folks before me said. Next question. John Fultz in CNESU of Pennsylvania. Up next with audio mixing on yesterday's NFL games was interesting. Fox mixed the ambient gain sounds so low it, sa- it felt unnatural. In contrast, NBC's mixed them hotter, and I like the results much better. How hot should game sounds be? What are your thoughts? Chris? I think the game sounds should be mixed perfectly, <laughs> especially at the level that they're doing. It should be perfect. I will say, um, I know for myself, although I have a great appreciation for, um, you know, very high end audio and, you know, I would love to have a big theater in my home with all the speakers and, and whatnot. I, I don't, I use a, a nearly broken sound bar, um, if I really want to listen to something I put on headphones, I get that that's not the experience. And I think that for a lot of people, their home experience, because of all of the different flavors and whatnot of, you know, uh, surround this and whatnot, I think a lot of people are listening to stuff at home very much not the way it was intended to be listened to. So it, it could be that what you're listening to on uh, it on uh is just not right. And a lot of times when I hear stuff that's way off, I, I think about it, and I go, you know what? I don't know a single audio engineer that would call this mix good. Therefore, it's probably on me. Bill? I think Chris's point about the playback, uh, uh, there's another point to be made, which is the playback system that you're using to listen to something varies so much. It's very hard for mixers to get it perfect for everybody. I've been on systems that really emphasize the mid-range and a really nice sounding mix in another place sounds really harsh there. I've also been in places where the bass was really enhanced. And if you mix in too much, it becomes really oppressive. So the, the you know they're trying to get an average. I will say also there's more and more embedded kind of pseudo advertising in broadcasts. And I think in that case, uh, when they're doing promo speeches from the from the uh, commentary box and things like that, it's really important to keep the voice way ahead of those things and to have the background not conflict with that or they get into contractual problems. So there's just a whole bunch of factors in this. It's not ever one thing. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was dealing with the tech issue there. Um, yeah, the uh, the the main thing here is that uh, it is everybody makes a dis- different decision uh, based on it. This is a creative decision, and it can be it, all of these are going to be um, different. Um, I do agree that that I, I will argue that NBC's coverage was better than everybody else's. So I skipped through. I was kind of watching graphics. I'm planning to do a. a, a I'm hoping that we can do a second hour on on the graphics because I think there was a lot. It was really interesting to watch all of the playoffs because they're considered high profile. All the playoffs um, at the these are the best graphics that each network is going to employ against a game. Um, and I and I watched it a little bit and I NBC stood out. <laughs> like like I, like I can just say that uh, they stood out on sound design. They stood out on on um, on graphic design. 
Um, and so I think, but we'll break through some of those and, and, and talk about them. They did some, some, some really interesting things, you know, with the graphics that we'll, we'll show that I didn't, hadn't seen before. Um, as far as the sound goes though. Yeah. And I'm the opposite of Chris. I have a, a seven, a seven, one system and I'm putting in a 120 inch, uh, projection screen because <laughs> well, we're going to test this, you know, and so, um, you know, to, to kind of get that. And so, um, uh, you know, I think that there is, those are the folks that are really committed to watching a lot, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of stuff. So in some ways you, you kind of play to that, that market to some degree. And there's no reason why you shouldn't in today's day, like uh, every game that you watch on the NFL is a $50 million game. And so, I mean, when you think about all the salaries involved and then all the production involved and everything else, the production itself is, I don't know, somewhere five or $10 million, but the, but with all the player salaries and everything else, you get to about $50 million a, a game. If you're going to spend that much, there's no reason why the audio mix can't be good for everybody. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like you can just spend a little bit more on it. Um, and, uh, but I think that, uh, again, I thought that MDC's coverage was better than everybody else's yesterday. I, I, I will say that the other thing is YouTube's, um, I, I didn't watch the whole games. I just, all I did was I, I got there, I got there with about five minutes left. And I watched Catch Me Up on YouTube, which it just plays all the big plays all the way up to the last five minutes. It, it's, it's obviously someone clipping because it just kind of spins. It spins for two sec, you know, a second or two when it goes from between each one. Totally works. And you just, there's like, there's 37 plays that you watch. And now you understand where, how they got to where they are. And then you watch the last five minutes because I, I, it's not a Steeler game. So I, I, I didn't want to expend that much time. I just wanted to, to just get the, give me the cliff notes and then let me watch the last six minutes. There's a lot of great last six minutes over the weekend. Mitchell? There's something a little bit different. It's all about balance. You know, the background is relative to the uh, to what the announcers or the hosts are, are talking about. So because of, if they're not there, then you just turn the background up. But uh, uh, the balance in the mix is very subjective and uh, how you do that. And don't you, uh, if you can remember way back when, I think ABC did this. Uh, they did a test where they didn't use announcers at all. And it was all Nat Sound for uh, some, some games. It was really weird. And Chris? Yeah, and I just want to go on the record. I mean, I consume a lot of media. <clears throat> I do watch and I uh, I envy somebody with a 120 inch TV and they, it's not and a TV. Whatever. Uh, I just, it's just not in the cards for me. I, I made a conscientious choice to uh, release that gear acquisition syndrome long ago and just, eh, I'm just the guy. I mean, if I'm going to really watch a movie, I watch it on my iMac. With the with the five K display, that's all I got. And Alex, yeah, the um, I thought one thing that was interesting when we talk about crowd sounds uh, that uh, during the COVID, before COVID, uh, I think it was EA, um, I think it was EA that did it. They they went and they worked with soccer teams to record all the crowd sounds. So they went from they went from all these stadiums and they got different chants and they got people cheering on a goal and people just cheering and then ambient and so on and so forth for their game, their their FIFA game. When COVID came came by, um, the the uh, the BB or um, Sky, who had had worked with them on it, came back to them and went, "Hey guys, we would really like. Can we use those sounds?" <laughs> So for their games, they got the sounds back from the, that they had recorded and, and or they relicensed them so that they could um, put them into the games and they put them on a, like a trigger board and uh, and then they they had a person sitting there triggering them all to to give you that ambient feel back and they're they're really glad that they had recorded all those soccer games. Next question. David Paskin in Miami, Florida, and here on the panel asks, at what point does an event benefit from moving 
from generic a meeting webinar uh, mode to a Zoom events platform. Go ahead, Alex. I would argue when you want to ticket. So that's, I mean, when you want to do ticketing, uh, so the ticketing is, uh, you know, if you want to charge for tickets and you want to have a ticketing experience and you want to have multiple kinds of memberships. So I mean, like not, not, or multiple kinds of attendees, this person's paying $10. These people are paying a hundred. These are paying 50. I think when you get into that mode, it's still just a webinar. It's a webinar with a backstage, right? You know, so the backstage is very frustrating to me. (laughs) So, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're we're using it for the Michael Krasny show, and as as kind of a as a test, I don't think I'm going to keep on using it. I'm just going to you know use a meeting and then plump people in because it's just the backstage is a little buggy, um, and uh, and so uh, it just doesn't operate the way I, I would want it to operate. And so um, so I think that that's not a real big advantage to me. Um, now we're producers, so we know how to do that. If you didn't know how to do that and you were just trying to set something up on your own and you wanted to do an event, the backstage might work just fine. Um, it's just clunky. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, so anyway, so, but I think the big advantage, we are doing an event. I'm working on an event right now. That's going to be a zoom events, pretty big one. It's going to have thousands and thousands of people coming to, to, to watch it. And it's specifically ticketing management that is pushing us into that, into that realm, uh, over webinar webinar, you can bring everybody in, um, but you can't, you can't give them, you can't start subdividing those things very well. Next question. Next question comes from Andy Carluccio in San Francisco, California. Anyone have any experience with the Teradek Ranger 4K? I have a friend who wants to learn from anyone's experience on real-world performance and range expectations in specifically a large sporting arena setting. Alex? It just depends on how big the event is. Um, So I have probably 95% of the productions that I've done, I've used Teradex at different high. I have not used the Ranger, but I've used the next one down or the older version of that. Um, and I've used, uh, I've owned, I don't know, 10 or 15 bolts, <laughs> bolts of different sizes um, to the three, you know, the 3000, 5000 and all these other things. And so I, I've used a lot of Teradex. I love Teradex for what I do. When I go into a, if you're saying a large sporting and I think that you're talking about a stadium, uh, I, I only use 3G Wireless. There's a company called 3G Wireless out of Maryland. And I will only, if, in a, if I'm going to a racetrack, if I'm going to a um, uh, if I'm going to a state a large stadium with a lot of people, using the the the, the frequencies that the Teradek uses, I would not recommend with seventy thousand fans or fifty thousand fans or whatever that is, and tons and tons of RF. Um, what you want is folks that are using licensed wireless um, that do this all the time. They're going to build you a mesh network that's going to allow that to actually work. Bill. Plus one on the mesh network. And the reason I'm saying that is I used to do announcing for an indoor soccer team that played in a large Coliseum type event on the field or anywhere in open air. It was just fine. You get down uh, to a locker room interview inside that concrete and rebar. Everything used to fall apart all the time. And literally, we had to run long XLR cables just to get audio signals out of that dense bottom of the stadium thing. So just take that into consideration. Next question. John Preto in Las Vegas, Nevada says, can Alex share the AI Lego app functionality? Alex. I don't, I don't have it ready yet. I don't have any Legos uh, at, at, at my disposal, but John was, <laughs> John was showing this to me. Uh, this is uh, Brickit.app, uh, and I don't have a way to show it at the moment. I don't have it in front of me. Um, but basically what you can do is take, you can point your camera at Legos and it will tell you 
what you could make with those Legos. <laughs> Stop. Really? Boom. That's all I got to say. You always look at your Legos and go, I don't know what I can do with it. It just you pointed at a pile of Legos and it identifies what Legos you have in front of it. And then it tells you that this is what you could build with those Legos. Oh, uh, so cool. Anyway, I, we'll, we'll try to do a demo at some, at some point, but it's, a, it's a really, like really cool. So app. much fun. Chris? Yeah, I saw an ad for that or whatever, and it just immediately sparked my imagination. Back many, many years ago, I actually won third prize, uh, a worldwide Lego contest. I'm a bit of a Lego uh, fan. Uh, not not one of those weird people with, you know, 20,000 bricks in there or 100,000 bricks in their basement. But I saw that and I thought it was uh, a joke. Like I had to look into it. It was like, oh, that can't be real. And it looks super cool. David? I see you pulling it up there. I work in a preschool. So if you give me five minutes, I'll go grab a whole bunch of Legos and download the app. <laughs> okay, very good. Very good. We'll come back. <laughs> next question. Douglas Carmichael will come up next in the interim. He says, I finally found a killer deal on the Mac Studio M1. Max, 32 core GPU, 64 gigabytes of RAM, two terabytes SSD for $3,199 US dollars. For $800 more, I can get the M1 Ultra in the same configuration with a one terabyte SSD for someone working in electronic music and or audio is the ultra worth it. Serge. Uh, for me personally, I think I will keep that at $800 and upgrade faster. I think in two or three years, you're going to have a better CPU anyway. And that $800 would give you much more for your, for your box than right now. Uh, that's, that power, that number, of course, it's plenty enough. Um, I have difficulty to imagine something that you will try to use that will need more than that. David? Uh, I would say the the uh, going from the Max to the Ultra, you're not going to get a significant bump. The key is to get that big, solid-state storage drive in there. Mitchell? Yeah, the Ultra is overkill. I think we talked about this on After Hours last night, uh, Douglas. But uh, I think you can get fine with the Max. And the other thing that we generally recommend is get the fastest drive uh, as big as you can in the internal Mac. Everything else, uh, all your music samples and storage can be done with external drives. And Alex. Yeah, I pretty much the same. I own what you're talking about. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I my only regret, as stated before, was that I didn't get a larger hard drive. I got a one terabyte. I would have gotten an eight if I understood the difference in speed. So um, uh, I would have put all my money into that. But I, I still would. I don't think that in audio you're going to find the difference uh, with between the Ultra and the Max. Next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois, is up next looking for recommendations for a dependable wireless presentation clicker with a range of at least 70 feet line of sight. This is for basic forward reverse and blank of side decks. Go ahead, Nigel. So I think if we're doing a professional production, then people use the DSAN type devices where it really, really, really always has to work. For something a bit more amateur, you can go onto Amazon and buy one of these things. I'll put a link on the uh, in the chat. They're probably a tenth or less of the price, uh, probably the same price if you buy the nice case for them. Um, they're just probably a bit more basic and they generally work, uh, but you always need to train the person in which is the forward button and which is the reverse button. Don't assume they will guess that because sometimes it's counterintuitive. But I wouldn't use it for a big event, but for a normal meeting, it's great. Alex? 
Yeah, this is the D, this is the smallest version of the, of what Nigel was talking about, the DSAN Perfect Q. Um, so this is the receiver that connects to your computer. This is what we often refer to as a pickle. It's hard to know, not know which way to go because there's a green and a red, <laughs> and that's the only two buttons you get. Uh, this will go a solid a solid 200 feet, um, even the small one. They make larger ones. This one is um, this one comes with a little case, and this is when I present. This goes into my backpack. I don't care what people hand me when I get there, um, unless it's a really, really big event. If I don't see this, I'm going to uh, insist on that I use my own. <laughs> you know, so, so that's the because uh, I, I, I just want it to work. Um, so, so yeah. So if you're, um, I, there are a lot of less expensive solutions to this, um, and these were really hard to get for a while. But if you can afford it, this is literally like when they showed Apple like putting one into a briefcase and running it across campus and everything else, you could recognize this uh, connector. Like every major corporation for every major event uses the same pickle. Next question. Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California. And here on the panel is up next. He says, I'm looking for a small, easy to use, upper quality, but doesn't need to be the very best 35 millimeter slide scanner. And of course, I only care about Mac compatibility. Thoughts? Mark? So there is a side scanner made by Nikon called CoolScan. I don't know that they make them anymore, but I have thousands and thousands of slides I'm scanning in because of an architecture firm that I work for. And uh, we use this all the time. One of the benefits of it is that it has a slide carousel that can hold uh, 50 slides. So you can scan 50 at a time overnight. And we use some software called ViewScan, which is really good. It works with over 7,000 different scanners and it lets you make all these different minute settings. And Mitchell. I have a cool scan uh, from Nikon. Unfortunately, it's scuzzy, so you might have it's compatible, but you may have a little bit of a problem with that. And uh, believe it or not, check out Sharper Image. And Alex, yeah, and and also decide whether you really need need if you're going to do them all the time. Get a scanner. Um, the cool scan is what I. I grew up on. We used to do uh, the 360s. We had to put them into the scanner in order and, and run them, run them through, and then run scripts to turn them into a QuickTime VR. So we used a lot of the cool scans for for that, and they were great. If I was going to do this as a project, unless it's really, really, uh, it's going to happen over and over again, I would just go to Scan Cafe and send everything to them and let them let them do it. It, it seems like it's important, but uh, I mean, if, if that's the thing that uh, you know, there's a variety of services that do those. They do them better. They do them faster. Um, and yeah, that's Bill. Just an addendum. When Mitch said SCSI, that wasn't a qualitative judgment. That's the small computer systems interface. And it's so old. I thought there actually might be people watching the show who didn't understand that. And I thought I would make it clear. Thank you, Bill and Chris. Yeah, this is just a personal project and it's not something that has to happen fast and it's more hob it's almost a hobby. I I've been cleaning up stuff around my mom's house and uh came across uh thousands, thousands and thousands of my dad's old 35 millimeter slides. And oh. uh interestingly enough, I I picked up one box, opened it up, pulled out five slides. Second image I pulled out was a picture of me at about 5 years old and and I was like, okay, this is going to be this is going to be fun. As long as there's pictures of me, I'm going to enjoy doing this. Uh, Mark, uh, what was the software you mentioned again? I, I remember. I think I, I've I'm even, putting I'm, a I'm putting a link in the chat. It's Hamrick's ViewScan, and it's great. View scan. All right, and, thanks everybody. And just as a note, there are plenty of if, if it's just more of a hobby and it's not a profession, there are plenty of great little scanners. And I look just looked at them on Amazon, like the Plustec. And uh, the Kodak ones, and a lot of them are running at 7200 DPI. Seems to be the thing, which is 
much higher than what we had when we were using the, when I was using a cool scan, it's higher than that. And so I think that at 7,200 DPI, you're probably um, going to get most of what's in that, in a, in an old slide. You're probably going to get, you're probably anything more than that probably be green. And they look like they're three fifty four hundred $400 kind of, kind of things. Just for fun. I found a, an, again, I know this is not the best way. I found a, uh, an iPhone app. I can't remember. It was like slide scanner or whatever. And, uh, on their website, they say, open up this browser. It's a big white screen. It says, turn, turn your brightness all the way up. And literally, just hold it, hold it up between, hold the slide between your phone and the thing. The problem is, is you get a reflection of the back of your phone, uh, yeah. which is nearly impossible to get rid of. But I will say, the software worked really good. Like, it, it scans it and immediately corner pins it. And it goes, boop, 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 boop. Like, there you go. And it's like, if it weren't for the reflection, it would... It was pretty impressive for for just you know digging through my dad's old photos. Yeah, no, absolutely. Go ahead, Mitchell. In a pinch, Chris, you could uh, put them in a uh, contact sheet and throw them in your regular scanner at uh, highest resolution, and you might get a pretty good picture out of it. Regular and scanner, Bill? that's cute. Well, mine's just a curation thing, and what I would probably do is grab, see if I could go online and find some old carousel projectors in the carousel trays, because 5,000, I'm not sure, you know, in in upper thousands of things, you may want to sit and spend 30 seconds or 15 seconds with each slide. I would want to curate and go through an automated projection and just decide the ones I actually wanted to deal with, but you may have a different feeling toward it. That was just a suggestion. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas comes up next. and. Uh, his question, there's a new chapter in the LastPass saga, and Steve Gibson rolled out a fix-it script partially written by ChatGPT. Does this affect your feelings about LastPass? John? To go back over my original statement, I was like nonplussed at what had happened originally, and then more data came out, and I was like abandoned ship. So nothing that's happened in the last week has changed me from leaving LastPass. I recommend moving off LastPass to Bitwarden right away. Now, Steve Gibson's tool is really nifty. I uh, used it myself. It showed me that my my vault was under the new encryption scheme. I got OKs all across the board. But that doesn't mean that you stay. Uh, they've got a really bad problem. They're not moving to address it. Uh, so get to somewhere that you feel more safe. Personally, I went to Bitwarden. One pass is another good one. Uh, just pick what works for you. Jeffrey? Yeah, I totally agree on that. You got to keep in mind that no matter what, you're going to get hacked. The websites are going to get hacked. Uh, programs are going to get hacked. It's just going to happen. And it's the question of how they recover from it. That's the key. And that's where LastPass is really failing, is how they're recovering from that. And so normally I would say, you know, let, let's kind of, in, in a way, let's wait it out. When it comes to passwords, that makes it a lot more difficult because they have, they have the keys to your house. And the keys to your car, keys to your summer cottage, all that other stuff. So, uh, being uh, moving over from LastPass is something that you, you definitely want to do. This this fix looks pretty legit. I love the fact that it's going through. Uh, it went through Chat GPT partly on there, but you know he also did uh, he also did a little bit of curation himself. But the bottom line is that uh, you know it's all going to happen. You just got to make the assessment and how hard it is to actually move it over. This, this app's helping with that. Chris? 
as the voice of the forever uh, neophyte and luddite and not luddite better uh, in the group. I, th this is what I have been saying all along. I've never ever understood the logic of saying, "Huh, I have hundreds of passwords. They're very important." I'm going to give them to this guy on the internet to keep track of them for me. I understand they say it's encrypted and everything, but here we go. This is a problem. And I can't, I, I've never, I've always thought that this idea of giving everybody your password or giving somebody who's eventually going to give it to everybody your passwords, it's just a crazy idea. I'd r literally rather put it on a post-it underneath my keyboard than, than uh, store passwords online like this. I don't understand it at all. Thanks, Chris. Before we get to the next question, I'm going to bring John. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, um, I, I kind of agree with you, uh, Chris, to some degree. But the other way is it's very convenient to use uh, online password manager tools. And most people will not come up with a unique password unless they have some sort of password manager tool. You really need a different password for every single site you visit. So I, I don't have that much space underneath my keyboard for post-it notes. Uh, I, I would probably be typing keyboard. up here. So I use one too, but that's but John, in the, in the same regard, if convenience is your barometer, then just don't put a password on anything. Just put use the word password as your password. Oh, that's, that's convenient also, right? Th there's degrees of convenience. Okay. There's degrees of convenience. Alex? Key loggers. <laughs> that's why you don't keep things on password pass, uh, post-its. Uh, you don't want to be typing your passwords in. You know, like that's that's because the that's the keylogger basically default defeats everything. Um, if you if uh, you know, unless you have to do that, so that's what you're trying to avoid. Um, oftentimes, um, especially if you're going to use a third party computer uh, to jump in. You know, I have all of my stuff is you know as many characters as the site allows typically you know as a hash. You know, so it's just hash 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 hash, and then I have my my um, password logger, I mean, my, my, my password logger, my password, whatever that is. Right now it's LastPass. It's probably going to be just Apple soon. Um, you know, and uh, uh, and I think that while there is, uh, there's a chance for this to happen. And again, we haven't seen, we don't know how many people are wholesale. If you changed it when you found out about it and you put another long thing into it, it's probably going to be a while before they get anything, uh, if, 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 if ever. Um, but the chances of getting key logging or someone, you know, really targeting you, um, getting in would be much, much higher, you know, so it's actually the convenience of being very secure um, actually makes a big difference on how secure people are. And Jeffrey. And don't forget two-factor authentication. Yeah. Most important, if you get hacked and they try to use your password, at least you're getting notifications that's saying that somebody's trying to log into your system and you can reject it at that point. And we're going to look back uh, at this of, oh my gosh, passwords. That was crazy. You know, like when I say look back, I mean, it's coming. Uh, within the next five years, we won't have very many passwords. It'll be all biometric. Next question. Jesse Kester in Glendale here on the panel. A month ago, our Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 6K started receiving phantom inputs on the touchscreen. Today, the 4K started doing the same. Is this a common issue endemic of high mileage units? And is there a simple fix or should we just send it to Blackmagic? Courtney? 
I suppose it could be caused by a number of things. A lot of times in the environment in which you're using these, if you're using these in an environment that has a lot of particulate fallout, it's dusty. Make sure you keep the screens clean and especially the bezel around the edges of the screen because if you have a conductive fallout or conductive dust that gathers on the edge of that, it can change the capacitance of a multi-touch screen. It's a capacitive touch screen. So clean your screen uh, with uh, you know alcohol diluted with uh, distilled water. Uh, isopropyl alcohol, and uh, and especially get a little stick with a lint-free cloth and clean around the edges of the bezel, and that might help. Depends on, on it could also be an internal short problem. But, uh. Jason? I had this happen on a 6K and a 6K Pro. Um, basically, your, your issues, if this doesn't fix it, then yes, by all means, call Blackmagic. Upgrade your firmware downgrade your firmware. And um, if you still continue to get exactly the same issue, give them a call and tell them what you've done. And I know that uh, David has the Brexit. Is it the the Lego app that... that Brick, Brick it. Brick it. There we go. Yeah. So I'm going to be playing with this for the rest of the day. So um, I spread some uh, Legos out here. It scanned them. It now shows me exactly how many of each type of Lego I have in here. And if I close this out, it will show me all the different things that I can build with this. So let's go ahead and build this one. Now it's going to tell me uh, which piece I need to get. And if I click down here, it's going to show me where in this. Oh, see, that was a, okay, so that's a missing piece. So I need one of these. So it's going to show me a replacement. Um, it, this is just, this is ridiculous. This is so much fun. Um let, let me find a, a piece here. If I click the play button, it's going to show me what I need and where I can get that piece in wow. the uh, in the pile. Just David, so will fun. it uh, will it show your face when you step on one? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Next question. Next question comes to us from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. And Alexander here on the panel says, what's the recommended way to get four picture-in-picture boxes on screen using an ATEM Extreme? Jason? Uh, well, pretty simple. If you have um, an app that we've used quite a bit on championed on, on office hours, MixEffect, that's right, MixEffect will will do this incredibly easily using the super source and... Um, yeah, you go to SuperSource and you go to Four Grid Full, and um, that'll that'll basically do it. You can transition. It's it's uh, quite cool and it's extremely easy. Mm. Alex, yeah, Mix Effect Pro is the way to do this. Um, you you can do you can put it together by hand um, by cutting and pasting things and moving them in. Um, without Mix Effect Pro, you can just do it with the switcher. You're using the super source there. But if you want to animate them, you want to have them come in, you want to have different configurations, it gets real ugly real fast inside of the ATEM software on its own. The macros are really painful because you have to you have to basically touch every every aspect of every window every time you want to go from this macro to that macro to this macro. Otherwise you'll end up it will take older states and move them in. Mix Effect Pro gets you past all of that. It's probably the most valuable piece of software. It'll literally increase the value of your ATEM by 10x, uh, you know, just just buying that one little piece of software. I, it should be, Blackmagic should have <laughs> should have bought it <laughs> and, just, and just shipped it with it. Uh, it's, it's a great piece of software. Next question. 
James Babbitt in San Diego says, when joining a Zoom meeting, sometimes I get a message that requires me to sign in to join. Could you discuss a comment from Office Hours on Sunday that the fewest steps for people joining a meeting is when the meeting uses a waiting room? David? You'll have to forgive me that I wasn't in that conversation on Sunday, but I will say that I think that fundamentally there are two different ways to approach security with Zoom. If you have someone who can monitor a waiting room and you know who you're expecting to come, then I turn off the password. I don't make people sign in with their Google. I just make sure I have that waiting room up and then I'm able or whoever I designate is able to monitor that and let the appropriate people in. For something like after hours or office hours where you have hundreds of people potentially coming in, a waiting room really doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's when having people either or both have to sign in with their Zoom account and know a password makes a lot more sense. Alex? 100% what David said. I use it when I, I think I was there. I was the one that's talking about this. It's that when I have regular meetings with folks or if I'm going to bring people into a meeting to do what we're doing here, which is to grab a bunch of ISOs and so on and so forth, that's when I actually um, uh, will use a waiting room because I just don't want anyone to think about it. I don't want them to come up and say, oh, I couldn't get in. I don't understand why I have to log in and all these other things. So I get rid of all of that, that stuff out of the way. Um, but, uh, but definitely if you're doing something over and over again or a very large event, you need to have that security in there and you can use a password, but the sign-in is, is a pretty solid way to get rid of uh, trolls for the most part. Next question. Next question comes to us from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, and he says, I've seen ads for four wireless uh, transmitter mic sets like the Rode Go. Has anyone tried any of these, like the Comico Wireless Lavalier Microphone Boom X-U Qua UHF? Jeffrey? So these microphones, they're, they're actually pretty cool because I, I got explained on how this all works by Andy at Sony uh, many years ago when they came out with uh, this one right here. This is the PO3D, which is a dual uh, dual band UHF, and it's a digital UHF, which is what makes it uh, the ability to actually bring two bands, and otherwise they'd be talking all over each other. Four bands is is crazy, is crazy. Uh, the, the, the fact of the Comica... Uh, these lower brands, usually what they do is they end up finding these licenses that are expired and then they can uh, take the technology and use them for themselves. So, uh, so they bring that into these little boxes. Uh, the biggest problem with this is it's not, you cannot separate any of the channels. So what you, you might get a left, two, two on left, two on right, but they're ultimately, once it goes into the camera, there's nothing you can do about it in any type of post. So if you have a, uh, a problem with interference or anything like that, then you uh, then you have to deal with it. The other thing is uh, the crosstalk, uh, the phasing that happens between the, the uh, two or four microphones. And uh, we had that, I had that problem at NAB using a microphone system uh, where I had to readjust the, the, uh, the phase of the, uh, of the microphone so we could, they didn't cancel each other out. So when you get that and you're trying to get that cl in a close-up area, you can run into a lot of problems there. Uh, I like the fact that something that you can actually record separate tracks. So when it comes into the camera, if there's any problems, you have that scratch track that you can uh, do some post on. Courtney? Yeah, I took a look at this. I have not tried it. Um, it uses, um, uh, it pairs them in two stereo pairs output. So you have channels A and B and C and D on two stereo pairs. So if you have a camera that has 
for tracks, for independent tracks, and you can still record for independent channels. Uh, my worry is that, because uh, it's probably a multiplexed receiver where it's switching, but digital switching between uh, these four frequencies and then downloading the packets from each one serially, uh, which means its latency is going to be pretty high. And it says its latency is less than 20 milliseconds, which is pretty high. That's half a frame. So I wouldn't use these in a situation where you're using PA, where the people that are speaking on those lobs uh, hear themselves over a PA. Or if you're an interviewer, if you're hearing yourself, it does have a local feedback, I think, that uses just an analog feedback. But I'm not sure if you're using one of the transmitters, if it's going to be delayed or not. So that may confuse people if they're hearing themselves back 20 milliseconds delayed. Next That's question. That's only for the cameraman. That's only for the cameraman, not the, uh, not the, the people. Right, the but if the cameraman is the interviewer, he may be listening to his own microphone and then. Next question. Next question comes from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia, and he says, a friend did a chat GPT search on conversations with Tony Mobley and sent the results to me. A lot of information. Should I be happy or concerned? John? I think with a lot of things on Office Hours, we're going to go with the standard Mickey response of, it depends. Um, was it accurate? Was it the, the sort of stuff that you want to reflect your channel? Um, then I think you should be happy. If not, uh, then I would be upset. At this point, it's important to realize that ChatGTP uh, ended up with uh, last doing their crawls back in 2021. So it's a little over a year out of date by now. So there's that. I really like ChatGTPT, and I also think that a lot of search engines are looking to integrate some sort of AI functionality. Uh, reports are Google's panicking that um, uh, Bing has already incorporated it or is going to shortly. So just keep that in mind that this is the new wave of search, and it's going to be how things are going to show up in the future. Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, it sent the picture from the main picture from my website, uh, conversation with Tony Mobley, and the information was accurate. The only thing that did not show up was it did not say that I was the host of conversation with Tony Mobley, but it did had did have all of the information about the website, about conversations. It it actually pulled in information that I initially started, I put in when I started conversation with Tony Mobley that I had actually forgotten about. And so it was amazing the amount of information that was generated by chat GPT. So I, I was just kind of stunned. And, you know, I just said, wow. It'd be cool to see what, like, the output, the data output for that, because how often do you say I'm the host of, because it's pulling that information. So I'd be curious if there's, like, you have bios or things out there, or if you, I'm thinking of this very much from an SEO, search engine optimization perspective of, like, marking today or whatever day you did the search and what it could look like two, three months from now, six months from now, if you intentionally like change some of the language, what that could look like for you. Bill? Yeah, I, I, I did. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, look, go ahead, Tony, respond. I, I, I didn't do the search. 
a friend did the search and then sent it to me. And I was just stunned by it. It, it was just amazing um, amount of data. Uh, as I said, it, you know, it talked about my career before um, when I was a teacher and, uh, and all of the different things that it, it shared. It was really interesting. Very cool. Bill? Yeah, I, I feel you, Tony. I, I remember probably 15 years ago, uh, there's a tool called the Wayback Machine, and some of the younger people may not know it, but I searched on myself maybe 15 years ago, and I was flabbergasted at how far back it looked to things like internet posts and things like that. We all really do have, if you're doing anything having to do with the web or something in public, um, that long tail of data that is still there is stunning. So I, I just was mindful from the time that I did that, that I make sure that everything I do online is stuff I would stand behind. It's one of the reasons I changed and stopped using handles entirely on any social media sites and had my own personal standard was that I'm not going to write it if I don't stand behind it and are willing to have somebody else see that information. It's a big deal. Next question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael is up next, and Douglas says, it's interesting that someone of Steve Gibson's stature used chat GPT to help him code. Why could that be, and are the schools that are banning chat GPT thinking in a short-sighted fashion? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, we're seeing more and more pro programmers using it as a brainstorming process. So write me something that that does this. I, I literally asked it to write a snippet of code in Swift to do to lock my camera on my iPhone. I haven't implemented it yet, but it it just saves you a lot of searching <laughs> because it will it will figure something out. If you're an advanced coder, you'll look at it and go, "Well, that's not exactly how I would do it," or I might change a couple things. But it definitely gets you. It'll it'll expose libraries, expose other things that are that are at, you wouldn't have thought about necessarily off the top of your head. Um, so it's it. I think I've I've been talking to a lot of programmers that are using it. Our schools. Schools are panicked because they have a very old way of doing things and they can't figure out how to move to the new way of doing things. And so um, they just don't have a structure for it and they're going to panic for a little while. But eventually they'll figure out a way to, that allows students to use it because it's pretty powerful. Paul and Lou in the chat say that someone else shared it just to the accuracy in, um, in the mm -hmm. question here. Jeffrey? So I, I always like to think of it like, because when I used to program, I would have a book and we all remember books. Um, and inside the book, I would always take little post-it notes and put it in key areas of certain uh, certain areas that I need to recode, uh, that I need to use from time to time. This I feel this is the exact same thing minus the post-it notes. So I, I actually did a, a code where I wanted to uh, I wanted to do something on on YouTube uh, via Python, and so I went to, into ChatGPT to make that happen. Now it not only did it help me put the code in, I made changes myself, but it also refreshed my memory as to how to do this because, you know, this isn't something that I do every day. So it's it's really nice to have that extra hand to help you with whatever you need. John? So I'm a software engineer that does some coding on the side, which means that I'm a very bad coder. Uh, I don't have the time of my day to code uh, reliably. And so it takes me a lot longer while I'm competent and I do write good code. It just takes me a lot longer than someone that isn't a developer because they're in it every single day. When I've used chat GPT, it 
does it so much faster than I could do it. It takes minutes for it to come up with the script that might take me half a day to come up with because I don't live in those functions and I have to research every single function and then experiment with it until I get it to work exactly the way I want it. So I think that using something like one of the machine learning interfaces, and there's others out there, uh, to come up with your code is going to be the way for the future. Schools, when I went to school, they didn't allow calculators. Now they're allowing calculators to take your SATs. Uh, it's just a matter of time before they allow it. Courtney? Yeah, I think schools are being very short-sighted if they're outlawing the use of GPT. One thing they should be doing is teaching how to properly use GPT and what are the tools and the and the little tricks to get a better result out of out of uh, tools like uh, OpenAI. Uh, so I think they're fairly short-sighted. I've found a new use for it uh, in rewriting uh, uh, instruction manuals from Chinese devices that are poorly machine translated. I just cut the incomprehensible instructions that are come out of the Chinglish and put in uh, rewrite colon and paste it in there. And it writes a perfect manual for this device that was incomprehensible before because it was written by a machine or translated by a machine from Chinese into English and uh, poorly. And Chat GPT cleans all it up and makes it perfectly understandable in complete sentences and with the right tense and everything else. David? One of my former Bible professors posed a question on Facebook about how he should handle ChatGPT being used by some of the students in his classes. And he actually came up with, I think, some really powerful questions to ask. He said he may ask, cut and paste the answer from ChatGPT to this, and then he poses a question about the Bible. And then the question he asked the students is, what grade would you give to this answer and why? Is all of the information correct? Is it missing any important information? Or he says, take a modern issue of concern. Imagine that you're the uh, uh, the poetic Isaiah, right? And fi write a five to 10 verse uh, poetic prophecy, the style of biblical poetry, ask ChatGPT to complete the same assignment and evaluate its product in relation to yours. We can either be afraid of this technology or we can embrace it and find ways to help to have it enrich our learning. They had a great discussion on the education hours on Saturday, if you want to go back and listen to that, because they did talk about AI, the influence and how it is impacting education. Harshid? I just wanted to bring that, yeah, Steve Gibson on Security Now had uh, somebody send in the code and he found the code to be so perfect. And upon talking to that person, they mentioned that actually they used ChatGPT to do the code. So it, that uh, Paul, as, as, as you already mentioned. So, Next question. Alex Lindsay of Novato, California says, have the panel members had any discoveries over the last week, like an aha moment? David? Uh, I did have one. I discovered that in Companion, the little black box at the top here doesn't need to be there, that you can hide it. And even better, if you go into your settings, you can uncheck the button that says show the top bar on each button, which means I now have more room for my text. Awesome, Nigel. Yes, uh, three quick things. Uh, despite what the song says, it does rain in Southern California. It rained uh, most of last week while I was there. The second thing is we went to visit one of our partners. The next generation of in-wall speakers are amazing. When I say in-wall, I mean mudded over, covered over behind the wall. They're just going to sound great. And the third, the office hours, one about mixers. I finally understand the difference between DCAs and buses. 
<laughs> Mind blowing. Jeffrey. Something I'm actually going to go into depth on Thursday's uh, office hours during our second hour, but uh, using my uh, 360 camera for CES, I started realizing, hey, I can actually split this and get two different uh, camera angles coming from there. So I've been uh, putting all my YouTube videos with two different camera angles, one of me and the person I'm interviewing, the other of the product, which has been going over really well. We've got a really good video coming uh, today. Alex? A uh, couple ATEM notes or computer notes. If you have your Mac Mini and you only use a USB-C for HDMI, you unplug the HDMI for whatever reason, uh, it will go black every once in a while and you'll have to unplug it to restart it. <laughs> so, so don't do that. Uh, that, that, was a, that was a new discovery this weekend. It happened a couple of times. It took me a little while to triangulate. And the second one was that with an ATEM, we did have someone doing a behavior where they were turning their Zoom camera on and off constantly and it went to the gray screen four times over one weekend which means that i think that we could just sit there and just turn it on and off and figure out how many times it takes to to turn off a, a to go gray tony real quick i was using um a video pencil and me live together on uh, my house of worship on thursday night and it was just absolutely amazing and i'm so proud of myself for being able to do it ed mitchell I was going through my music library, and I was happy to find this particular disc. That was my aha moment. It's a fitting way to close our first hour and head into our second hour. Thank you so much, producers, for your questions. And now as we get ready to speak with Renee Ritchie, YouTube creator, liaison, no stranger to the Office Hours community. Thank you so much, Renee, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a huge thrill to be here. All right, so let's start with this new role, relatively new role now, uh, a few, uh, a good almost half a year in. Can you define for us what is a YouTube creator liaison? What entails in that job? So absolutely. So it's based on the Google search liaison, Danny Sullivan, who was at Search Engine Land, and then they brought him inside to sort of give this human face to what everybody thought was this uh, soulless machine. And they thought it was a good idea to have liaisons in other areas. So there's Ginny, who's the ads liaison. And they thought it'd be a great idea to have a YouTube liaison as well. So the, the, the job is to advocate for creators inside of YouTube. And of course, a lot of people are already advocating for creators. Everybody's advocating for creators inside YouTube, but they all have other jobs to do and they all have other things to do. And there's always creators are not a monoculture. They're so diverse. So that they thought it'd be somebody's job to just do that. That's the only thing I have to worry about. So I try to build empathy and understanding for creators and creator culture inside of YouTube. And then externally, I try to educate and help creators so that they're less stressed and have more success on YouTube. So now let's talk about like how you got there, because I recall in like 2020, that's when you buckled down and said, you know what, I'm going to do start this channel. You've been on YouTube for a very long time, but starting the channel, being a daily creator. But take us back a little bit before that. Yeah, so uh 2020, the company that I've been working for, Mobile Nations and iMore, got sold to a giant British media company. And it just, it wasn't a great fit for me anymore. So I gave my notice. I gave them a month's notice because I thought maybe there'd be an Apple event, you know, in March and I should, I didn't want to leave them shorthanded. And then in that time, the world closed. And I honestly did not know what I was going to do, but I'd met a lot of YouTubers. I'd done a lot of YouTube for my old company. And I thought that would be a great career. So I started working on that and I built that up. And I 
had a manager uh, at the time, and he was good friends with a bunch of really big YouTubers and a bunch of people at YouTube. And I got to meet them and talk to them. Uh, and one of them was Todd Beaupre, who is director of discovery at YouTube. And at the same time, around early 2022, the YouTube, the first YouTube liaison decided to retire, to resign and go on and do other things. So they were looking for another liaison. And I'd known Matt Koval, who was doing the job before. But I was, you know, I was my, I was building my own empire. I was in charge of my own destiny. YouTube was the best job I ever had. It was more successful than I ever thought it could be. And Todd was like, but you should, you should really go talk to them about this. It's like, no, I'm not going to work for another company again. That's over. And he said, just, just go talk to them. And it sounds so corny, but it was effectively like the Steve Jobs walk where, uh, you know, I met with the team and I was talking to them. It's like, do you want to keep making soda water or do you want to come with us and dent the universe? And I realized I've been telling people or helping people pick which iPhone to buy, which MacBook to buy. And that was all great. But at YouTube, I would have the chance to help people at an unimaginable, like at a once in a lifetime scale. And I just I could not let that opportunity go by. So at that point, I'm like, OK, I really want to get this job. That is phenomenal. And I've been going through like just first of all, just being able to have this conversation with you. And I see that we've got a ton of questions, but I want to take some time if our panel has any comments or want to jump into this part of the conversation where we're ready to hear like all things YouTube and just giving you an idea of our audience. We have there are folks that are small creators. So just getting started or thinking about it all the way to people like Jeffrey Powers and David Paskin, who are constantly on the platform. What can you tell us about in 2023 that we should really be paying attention to in the YouTube landscape? So the thing that's exciting me the most about 2023 is I think multi-format is really becoming a thing. YouTube has long-form video. It's had it since the beginning. We've built out live video. Podcasts are becoming more popular. And now shorts monetization is going live at the beginning of February. And that means you have all of these different formats all in one platform. And I've seen some examples already. I'm, I'm sure we're going to see more, but it effectively gives any individual creator all the tools that used to require a studio or a big recording label. And there's some great examples of people who have, they're working on this really big, really great video and they start teasing it early with shorts, giving like a little bit of behind the scenes, but also what's coming or eliciting community feedback. And then that big video drops and maybe they go live afterwards for Q and A or for interviews or just for, uh, to, to talk with fans and then they pull more shorts out of the big video and out of those community interactions and they use that to remarket it. So in the past, you'd have like the Avengers trailer, the Avengers movie, the red carpet, which is like a, a premiere and then like all these different interviews and then those would be airing on TV later, like the biggest movie of the year, see what the critics are saying. You can all do that now as an individual creator on YouTube. And to me, that's just like the, the amazing thing that you can do now as an individual. Awesome. Let's go to the panel. Alex, you've got some questions. When you're talking to you, YouTubers and create, creators on YouTube, uh, what, do you, what would you say is the, the biggest mis, misconception or misunderstanding that creators have of dealing with uh, YouTube? I think it is still 
the that the algorithm is somehow their enemy, and that the if they do anything wrong, the algorithm will punish them. And I know that's how I felt originally because I didn't know how anything worked, and some videos did well and others didn't. And you felt like when you succeed, it's like oh look at what I did, and when you don't succeed, it's like oh the algorithm's you know not not happy with me. Uh, and just figuring out that the algorithm tries to follow the audience, and if you stop thinking about the machine and you think of the human beings at the other side of the screen and making them happy and and building every video, every experience with the humans in mind, that becomes transformative. John? So, Renee, um, I've got a very small channel, like 76 uh, subscribers, uh, but I've been doing it for about 18 months now. Um, what am I not using that I should be using to, to maximize my channel? Yeah. So the first thing is like when you say like a small channel, 76 people, if you were doing a comedy act or something in, in front of a club with 76 people, that's still a lot of people. So that's pretty amazing to begin with. The, I think the key to growth though is to start figuring out what those 76 people are there for. Uh, some people think like a, a channel should be a channel, you know, that it should be like NBC's primetime schedules. They put a lot of different things or they use it to reflect their, their interests. And that's great if you just want it to be a place that hosts your video. But if you want to build an audience, you should think about it more like a show. I like to say like Brian Cranston can be in Malcolm in the Middle and he can be in Breaking Bad, but they shouldn't be the same show because that just confuses people. So one of the ways to, to accelerate growth growth on YouTube is to figure out like what that audience is there for, what they love. You can go into analytics and see the videos that they're responding to and then give them more of that to love. Whenever they watch one of your videos, make a, make sure you have another video that's just super easy for them to watch afterwards that's more specific or more broad that focuses on something and that they would watch afterwards. And the, the key to YouTube is, is really satisfaction. So if you get somebody to watch one of your videos and they're so satisfied they want to watch another one and then another one, doesn't even matter if they're subscribed or not the the algorithm the recommendation engine will start giving them more of your videos and then that's just a huge growth engine that's a great term satisfaction like satisfying your audience david it's very strange talking to you renee on the set where i've watched you hundreds and hundreds of times and i guess i'm curious about the the community aspect of YouTube and building community. Because YouTube, unlike Zoom, is one way. It's broadcast, not multicast. And of course, there are comments and things like that. But you have always been about on your channel, at least to me, about building, what was your saying, the best darn community, tech community, <laughs> right? right? How, how is community built on YouTube? Yeah, so one of the things that I think is is relatively unique about YouTube is that they've made a conscious choice to focus on what we were just talking about on satisfaction. You know, in the early days, it was click-through rate, but that resulted in a bunch of clickbait. And then it was watch time, but that resulted in just a bunch of long videos. And then maybe people didn't enjoy all of the topics that they were watching. So YouTube really focuses now on satisfaction, which is and a bunch of indicators. So that you want somebody to watch a video and feel good about it, to enjoy it. And I think that starts to create better incentives for making a connection. And then it just comes down to the tools you have. So for example, YouTube Shorts or short form video in general, uh, which is videos served, you know, typically vertical videos served in a, in a feed, in an algorithmic feed. So you're just swiping through them and there's no real choice. Uh, like you're not choosing a thumbnail, clicking on it. Very different interaction. 
amazing for discovery, not great for community because people aren't choosing to watch it, but they can discover you that way. And then you have the traditional long form video, which is what I've mostly been doing, where you can make those deeper relationships and you have comments. But I think if you really want to get into, uh, and I'm preaching to the choir here, but if you really want to get into the community aspect, you want to be doing live as well. And I've always done that off channel. I'm planning to do that on channel, but that way you get all of those interactions. You're taking questions. You're having a conversation with your audience. So if you can figure out a really good balance where shorts are just driving massive discovery to your main content, and then you're spitting off these live interactions that come from that, that you know, maybe that's the topic of the live interaction. You're really getting the best of, of all of the world. And that builds just really, really strong community bonds. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Hey, Renee. Uh, Glad to have you on. Uh, of course, uh, I, I run Geekazine, which uh, just actually hit 25,000 subscribers this last weekend. And uh, I've been doing the uh, Geekazine since, uh, well, that channel since uh, 2011. And I know that there are other people that are, you know, will shoot past 25,000 within a, a couple heartbeats with uh, stuff like that. Uh, you said that, you know, it, and, and we were seeing long form, we're seeing short form. I know, I know that, that uh, YouTube's also getting into shopping, YouTube's getting into different types of live, uh, HLS and all that other stuff. That causes possible burnout situations, especially for smaller channels that uh, where people are seeing only a minimal growth where they might see somebody surpass them within a heartbeat. Uh, how do you, when somebody comes with, approaches you and says, I feel like I'm getting burnt out in this medium, uh, how would you, how do you respond to that? Yeah. So I think that has to be prioritized. Like your mental health has to come first. There are people who use YouTube artistically, and I think that is fantastic. And there are people who use YouTube commercially, and I think that's great too. I think a lot of the stress comes when you're sort of in the middle and you haven't made a clear choice about it. Like if you're doing a lot of videos to satisfy yourself, if you're making a lot of artistic choices, that's the same as like Scarlett Johansson or Chris Evans can make the Avengers and get Avengers money and Avengers box office, or they can choose to make these little art house films like Knives Out where they're not going to get Avengers money and they're not going to get Avengers box office, but they have, they understand that going in. And you could argue like on my channel, I could make a big iPhone review and that will get, I know that's going to get a, ton of traffic and I can make a small video about accessibility, which I love. Um, and I know it's just not going to get anywhere near that, but I don't get upset about that. In fact, I look at like the bigger videos that allow me sort of like the big movies allow you to make those art house indie flick choices. So I think if you are, if you really want to drive massive growth, you've got to get yourself in that mindset and then you might sacrifice some of the art you know, for a little while to be able to do that. Uh, and you'll be focusing on topics that have really broad appeal, or you'll be focusing on niches that provide a tremendous amount of value because you can do both. You can have like some videos, uh, uh, just for laughs, you know, famous Montreal example where the com the comedy is, there's not even any spoken language, you know, it's just prop comedy, stunt comedy, and anybody in the world can appreciate that. Or you can have channels that focus, you know, on, on picking the great camera gear, like a Gerald Undone situation where you're, you're hyper specific on the nerdiest aspects. And both of those can grow, but you have to think about the addressable audience for each one. And that set, then set reasonable expectations for yourself. The more niche, the more value you can drive, but the size won't be the same. It's more of a depth play than a breadth play. And the other way around, you know, you'll have these massive numbers and you'll have to do massive numbers because the depth isn't there. So just getting a sense of the kind of videos you want to make, like never force yourself to make videos you don't want to make because you won't be able to 
sustain it, but find something that you love making, that you can keep doing for the long haul, then understand the size of the audience, the depth of the audience there, and then make those sorts of choices. And if you are running it like a business, think about like, it's the same as running a mall kiosk or a restaurant. You've got to build an, a, a framework, a structure around yourself so that you can take time off by like pre-recording videos or, or, you know, making enough income that you can take planned vacations. At that point, you really have to run it like you are doing it as a career or like a, a, an aspirational career. And I think once you get that set in your head, um, that clarity avoids a lot of the, the, uh, the burnout issues that you might face later. Oops, I think you're muted, Liberty. My apologies, Mitchell. Oh, hi, Renee. Mitchell. Hello. Good to see you. Um, you too. My mom always said I had a face for radio. And uh, my question uh, results in uh, doing a podcast as an audio-only podcast. At what point do you decide that maybe this should be seen on video at the same time? Yeah, so I'm one of those people who has a voice for blogging and a face for podcasts. So I totally, totally 100% feel you. I, I just, I kind of think these days that unless there's like a compelling reason, like you may not just like doing video, but if you can do video, I think just the, the ability to reach more people in more ways. You know, some people can just listen and that's fine. Other people are very tuned to body language. And even if it's just you literally filming yourself doing the podcast, it adds another dimension. We all saw during the last two years, this advent of what I call like comfort content. It started with just a study with me where people would just sit a camera up, start doing their homework and tons and tons of people would sit there and just do their homework with them. But we're seeing this across an incredible range of things now, like very silent videos. Like there's no talking. There's just uh, ambient noise of people doing leather work or bricklaying or, uh, you know, making things, camping in the rain, all these different activities. And people just like being there and hanging out with them and the visual act, like the visual element, it can be ambient. Like you're just on on their TV set and they're walking around doing their chores. Uh, it, it just adds another dimension to it. And the nice thing about YouTube is most podcast clients really don't have a discovery engine built in. If someone goes to your page, they'll see your latest podcasts. Maybe they'll see some other podcasts that you really like. But for example, if I did a WWC episode, uh, you'd see my podcast on WWC and then like a but like probably like the talk show and uh, Marquez, you know, Marquez's wife uh, waveform and a bunch of other things. But on YouTube, you would see those specific episodes. You'd see like Alex's office hours in the corner and the Mac break episode on it and Marquez's video, very specific. And that allows people to just click through and find more of what they love. And that I think is the real growth engine. It's not a bunch of people sort of competing, but a bunch of people all lifting each other up. So if you can be in there and you can give somebody like a human connection i think that just it amplifies everything else that you're doing harshid hey renee uh, nice to meet you pleasure to have you here and the question here is so we're, we're talking about identity sort of in the podcast as mitchell also stated here uh some channels might also use the shorts to build more traction in the community but do we feel that we have a little identity crisis so to speak because some people will tag a podcast and it would just be a open question QA session. And so sometimes I know that the format is supposed to be a podcast, so you could put it in your phone and you know listen to it as you just mentioned anywhere. But should we kind of make sure that we're telling people the correct way of making content where you know YouTube is meant for the kind of the video output and don't put maybe hashtag podcast, hashtag you know, a whole bunch of words. 
and make it more concise where if you're talking about accessibility, so you made an accessibility video in the past and it is a phenomenal video, which still gets watched by the blind community often. But, you know, how do we take something as how that works for that specific niche to a, another topic where it could work for your channel and to be more concise with the way we, you know, are we producing podcasts? Are we producing a show? Are we producing a QA? So how do we kind of get more concise with that? Yeah, I think that it's always best to create identity the opposite way, which is almost like think of the audience. Some people will think of just a specific person. They'll come up with an avatar for their channel and they'll do like a lot of deep research into the comments and into the analytics data. And they'll try to figure out specifically who's watching them. Like maybe it's a 42 year old who's into tech, uh, has like a family and has like a disposable income and it, it's not perfect, but it sort of gives them a model. It's like that old writing thing. Like whenever you're writing anything, picture the person you're writing it for, and that gives you focus. And it's very similar on YouTube. If you can sort of pick like the audience that you're trying to reach, and regardless of the format or the specific topic, you always tie it into that audience. I think that gives you tremendous focus. Like in your examples, maybe I'll do a long podcast. You know, I'll do an interview with Alex Lindsay about a variety of topics, and then I'll look at my the graph on that podcast, and you can see now the sort of hot spots, which are the areas that people replayed. It's not you know how much they watch, but it's how many times they went back and rewatched those things. And then maybe I'll take that segment, you know, where. Uh, Alex is talking about sharing AR files, and I'll cut that out and make it a short. It, that's a one-minute encapsulation of that. And we see a ton of that lately, like podcasts showing up in their shorts reel with a highlight of a specific question, a specific answer. And that's just a way to drive attention to that podcast. But as the topics change, you, they're still relating to something. Like I made it very... I made a very deliberate decision that my accessibility podcasts were related to the audience. So they were around iPhone accessibility or Apple Watch accessibility. And that everything, like the title, everything about that, my the the most the majority of my audience would still want to consume. I try to think like if they watched the last video, what next video would they want to watch? And regardless of the topic, the packaging around that can be very specific. Hashtags, I never worried about too much. You can use hashtags if you're trying to get into a trend. You know, for example, like a, a big movie comes out and you want to you you do something on Avatar and you hashtag it avatar and way of water and all of that, then you'll show up on a search page. If someone clicks that hashtag, your video will be there. But the consequence is a bunch of other people's videos will be there. So they might watch somebody else next and not you. So I think about those things a lot. And then I'm very careful and deliberate about the hashtags. And I only use them when I think they're going to benefit me, not just to put them there, just to put them there. I'd rather have no hashtags than just sort of um, hashtags that I don't think will specifically benefit the video. And Tony. I want to say hello, Renee. I am probably your biggest fan that you don't know. <laughs> and I just want to say it's so good to meet you. Um, oh, you too. My name is Tony Mobley, as I said, and I am the host of Conversation with Tony Mobley, which is a office hour produced um, podcast. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, I have 438 subscribers. We have 80 episode, 81 episodes in. And I wanted to know if me uh, publicizing my YouTube content on Facebook and LinkedIn is advisable. And um, should, should, should I be looking to promote it more on YouTube itself or do I 
need to continue to do, try to do on, on other social media? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a mix of both. It, it really depends on your goals. Promoting on social is a little bit of a mixed bag because quite often social networks want to keep people on those networks. So they won't actually send people over to YouTube. They'll open up like a WK web view or something and then embed the player. Uh, and that means that people are watching you without being logged in because you'd have to log in over and over again every time it popped up one of these web views. So mostly they're just watching you there. So people who already know about you, your existing audience, they will watch it, but it won't go into their watch history. So the next time they go to YouTube, they might see that video. They go, oh, I already watched it. But their YouTube thinks, oh, they're not watching it now. What's going on? So if you think a lot of your audience is already aware of your podcast, then it might not, it might not be great to share or maybe wait a little while. Just put on, go on social and say, hey, I've got this great new interview. It's up on the YouTube channel now. Don't link to it, but let people know it's there. Maybe include the thumbnail or maybe take a little snippet of it and include that in a native video. And that way it sort of teases what it is, but they'll still go over to YouTube to watch it. So it'll go into their watch history and they'll get more and more recommendations based on you. If you have a huge presence somewhere else and you think a lot of people really aren't watching your content, then I, you could probably share more just because it becomes, they'll become more aware of your channel and maybe they'll uh, go seek it out or go subscribe to it the next time they're on YouTube. But I think all of those things are sort of supporting mechanisms. The nice thing about YouTube is that it is, if you give it just a little bit of direction, if you are clear in your episodes who your audience is, sometimes it's harder for interview shows because people might pick and choose based on the guest. But if you can try to find some common thread and include that common thread in the packaging, like the title, the thumbnail, the description, so that people are more inclined to think of it as the like the next episode of something that I enjoy, then I think there's just there's nothing on this planet that can promote things as well as YouTube's recommendation engine. Thank you, Renee. Bill, it's time to get into these questions. There are a lot As of questions. As you can imagine. Wow. What a response here. Uh, so the first one comes from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. And Chris says, what's the most surprising thing you found in your new role, Renee? So... Uh, I knew that people inside YouTube cared about creators because a lot of the people that I knew at YouTube did, but it amazes me. Like it, it permeates every part of every discussion. And the part that's super interesting, I know this happens to everybody when they they go to a new job. They're like, why haven't we just done X, Y, Z? And they'll, they'll tell you it's because, well, yes, a creator like you would benefit from that. But do you realize that this would hurt creator ABC because they have very different needs than, than you do? And I, it made me look Really stop and think, oh, yeah, I have to change all of my assumptions because there might be this, you know, this middle ground of creators that would generally all have similar interests. But YouTube and creators are so wide and so varied that you have to be really sure you consider every edge case uh, triple three times before you move forwards with things. I think that sometimes caused me frustration as a creator because I thought answers were obvious that once you step back and have a bigger view are n not at all obvious. Next question. Dan Huber, Erie, Pennsylvania. What's been the best part of working at YouTube and what's the culture like? So the, the absolute best part of my role specifically is that almost every day I get to finish the day knowing that I helped creators, like specific creators in really meaningful ways. And I, you know, and there's a, there's a ton of people on YouTube who work on that. Team YouTube is fantastic. Creator support is fantastic, but there are always people who, you know, fall through or they're not clear how to do something and just being able to find these little areas of friction and help those creators. Uh, it's like the privilege of a lifetime for me. 
Um, and I'm sorry, I totally blanked on the second part of that question. Second part of it was what's the culture like at YouTube? The culture is amazing because it's so creator centric. Creators really are like YouTube says it. And, you know, people probably like, yeah, because we're also, um, blase these days, you know, like creators are the center of everything that we do, but that really is true at YouTube. Like creators are everything. Uh, and that is unique. Like I, I can't think of another company where, where that is like the a company at YouTube scale. I mean, that, that is, that is, that has that as the central truth. I think just, that's just remarkable. Next question. Jason Bay, Albuquerque, New Mexico. What's the thing that most people don't understand, which would have made your last two jobs a million times easier? Oh, my last two jobs. Uh, I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about with like the algorithm really is the audience. A lot of people creating things, whether it was my old job on like making blog posts every day or, you know, my previous like making videos every day. I, for a long time, I thought about it from my point of view. What blog am I writing? How am I going to write this? What video I'm making? How am I going to do this? And when you flip that around and think like, what is my audience going to see from me today? What are they going to get from me today? What can I make that they're going to absolutely love today? It just provides such a different kind of clarity and focus that it, uh, it it's transformative. And that's, I, I wish I knew then what I know now about being like viewer and audience centric in, in every decision. Go ahead, Jason. So that's that's the prior job. So what about this current job? Like, you know, the, the thing that you, um, you know, that if you could just like download into the heads of, of all the people that you're helping, that, that it would just immediately like clear a whole bunch of things up. Yeah, I think it's like there are a lot of people who have an immense frustration because they look at YouTube and they say like, why, why aren't I getting a million views for this video? And again, it, it comes from them saying like everything, like I... I'm going to, I don't have a really good analogy for this, but it just comes from the idea that anything I put up should just be promoted to the moon. That should just explode across the web, should break the internet. Uh, and really like it goes, there was this great conversation between Marquez Brownlee and uh, Jimmy Donaldson, Mr. Beast, where, you know, Jimmy said, make better videos. There's not a single problem, not a single growth. There's not a single thing that I can't solve on YouTube by just making better videos. But that is so tremendously hard to do that most people will do almost anything to avoid it. They'll spend days looking at SEO and keywords, even though SEO is relatively meaningless on a platform that has perfect knowledge of viewer experience. They'll spend like a ton of time on social promoting things. But if you just stop and you look at every video you make and you pick one thing that you could do better in the next video, and then you keep doing that until it is better, objectively better. Like it involves an incredible amount of ego suppression, uh, which is one of the most important things to being a creator, I think. But if you can do that, the, the, the sky is the limit. There literally is not a single problem that can't be solved by making better videos. What does a good video look like? Just following up with you saying like, just make your video better. Where would someone start? So like... I would start, like, if you're new to YouTube, I would start just making videos. Like, if you're not sure what topic you want to cover, try a few different topics and make sure it's something that you can make videos on sustainably for a long period of time. Because there might be things that interest you that you're just like, I can make five videos and I have no idea what to make after that. Or it could be like, I just, I'm not as into this as I thought I was, or I just, I don't enjoy it. So pick like, if you know what you're going to do already, get started. If you don't, spend a few, like, spend a little bit of time making a few videos of each, see how the audience reacts to them. And then pick your topic, your focus. And then from then on, make like 
20 videos, 100 videos on that topic. And that's really just so you learn how to make videos, like you get all the grunt work out of the way. And also so you start getting enough data to make informed decisions about your audience. And then start going into YouTube analytics and you'll see the videos that grew your channel the most, that had the most returning viewers, or that people uh, like would watch more of your other videos when they watch them. And then start drilling down to make videos that are more like those. You'll see very quickly, like three or four videos will bubble to the top and that'll give you the idea. And a lot of people, again, because creators are very self-centric, will look and say, well, it's repetitive or I don't want my page. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. Almost nobody watches multiple like multiple videos from any channel, even the biggest channel. The amount of time people spend looking at their channel page or if they have repetitive looking subjects or repetitive looking thumbnails is close to zero. It's something that really only bothers us. So you got to get all of that out of your mind and just focus at that point on somebody's watching this video. What is the next video they're going to love? And then that's all, that's from the channel point of view. From the individual video point of view, it's, it's different than traditional storytelling in that a lot of, like, if you go to the movie theater, you sit down, if, they can take their time. You're a captive audience and they can build characters slowly from the start. Like the act one of a movie or even a television show because of the amount of investment, like the luxury that they have to story build is very different than when you have other thumbnails immediately below your video or to the side of your video. So you want to think about the thumbnail and the title are a promise. They, they're going to be competitive. You could be next to a Mr. Beast video or a Marquez Brownlee video. So your thumbnail has to, like, people should be able to stop. They're scanning on their homepage or they're flipping through their phone. Your thumbnail should stop them. And if the thumbnail by itself isn't enough, your title should live rent-free in their brain. I'm not talking about clip rate, clickbait. I'm talking about being click-worthy. Like, the topic should be interesting enough that they're thinking about it and they want to know what it is. So they're going to click on that. And then immediately you have to reward that click. So like, the classic example is Survivor, the TV series. You start watching Survivor. There's a slow build. Then somebody gets voted off at the end. The YouTube version of Survivor is you click that thumbnail. Someone is thrown off immediately. So you get like rewarded for that click. You, you feel your, your, the thumbnail and the title made a promise. It delivers on that immediately. You get a few minutes of backstory on why that person was thrown off. And then it builds towards the next person being thrown off. And when you start to like, uh, it's it's more of a sculpture thing. You start to whittle away until you get to that essence of of what a good video is for your channel, and then you just start building and iterating on that. By far, one of the best responses that I've heard on that. Thank you so much. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia says, I've been asked by a client to focus on creating shorts content. I can clearly see by the analytics that we're getting a majority of new subs from them. Is it recommended to create original content for shorts instead of clipping segments? So you can absolutely do either. And you probably want to test doing both and see what the reception is. The, the classic guidance like we give is same audience, same channel, a different audience, different channel. So if you're, if you're starting to do things that are really different than what's on your main channel, people might subscribe. They might click over and then just not resonate with your other videos. And that, that's not always the best situation. So if you're doing things that are very different, you might want to try doing that. Shorts are a great way to experiment. It's like lowering the barrier of entry, reducing the amount of commitment. You can use shorts as a way to explore a bunch of other topics. If you're trying to use them to grow an existing channel, highlights is a great way of doing that. Uh, if you're doing it on the app, you can even go in 
pull a section out of a video. Again, you can look on the heat map to see what parts of the video people are finding the most interesting. And you could pull that into a short. There's like, you click the shorts button, you click edit into short, you pull out 15 to, to 60 seconds. And YouTube will even put a button on that short, which will let them go immediately to the long form video to continue watching if they find it interesting enough. So there's things like that that promote it. And then you, you might want to try testing ancillary content, like adjacent nearest neighbor content, like BTS for the channel or like an interesting segment teasing something that's coming up or following up. Like if someone asks you a question, there's a, a feature that's just beginning to roll out uh, where you can hit uh, reply to a comment. There'll be a shorts button there and then it'll put the comment up in the corner and you can reply to that short to, sorry, you can reply to that comment and that'll be a short. And that just brings uh, shorts into more of the interactive community building. So lots and lots of options there, but I would keep on the same channel, I would still keep it focused on that same audience member. Go ahead, Jeffrey. On that same uh, on that same aspect, uh, there has been a lot of speculation as to where shorts are going to go in 2023. Of course, February 1st is the date where they're going to or YouTube's going to start monetizing shorts. Do you have a quick roadmap on that? Because or, or is the shorts going to split from the regular uh, YouTube channel? No, I don't think so. I think people are going to really, I, my hope, uh, my, my prediction is that we're really going to see 2023 be the year where people are embracing multi-format and you start seeing more channels that are not adverse to, if they started off traditionally as long form, they're not adverse to experimenting with shorts and using shorts to drive discovery to that long form content and then going live or having podcast episodes, trying all of those things just to get a really good mix of discovery and then audience uh, attachment. I think that's going to be the big thing. Or if someone is starting out and they're using shorts as a way to sort of uh, bootstrap the beginnings of a new channel, them getting into longer form video. Maybe that looks like compilations in the beginning, but then it evolves into just longer form based on the same, like the same skits or the same interactions or the same uh, advice, whatever they're doing in the short form. I think they're going to expand on that into long form. So I see there being like a real synergistic, almost like a force multiplier relationship building on to this next year. Next question. James Fossa in Minneapolis, Minnesota says, in regards to YouTube branding, is it all right to just start creating imperfect content or can you ruin your brand before you really get started? Yeah, so I think like if you are just beginning, just start creating, get those videos out there because you will learn so much through that process. And it's become almost a cliche at this point, but the amount of videos, like Marquez Brownlee famously started with his webcam and just kept making videos. And it took forever, like hundreds of videos before he got any traction. Uh, Jimmy Donaldson, Mr. Beast, again, filming with his, I forget, like an iPhone 6 or something for hundreds of videos until he got any traction. But you learn those skills and you, you figure out your audience doing all that. So I think it's always better to get started and then build that out as you go than to wait because waiting can be forever. You can never get this really good way to never get started. So just like start making those videos and you can, you can learn so much from that. Maybe you'll start future channels that you know, are, are great from the get go, or maybe you'll, uh, you know, you, you won't want people to go back and look at those old videos anymore, but the amount of knowledge that you'll build from them is just, there's nothing else like it. Next question. Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona wonders at what threshold do YouTubers get access to the creator liaison? Uh, there is no threshold. I am available for you uh, across social. You know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on YouTube. You can find me pretty much everywhere. So please, like, do not hesitate to reach out. If it is specific tech support instances, Team YouTube, uh, at Team YouTube, is, are the people who can help you. I don't have anywhere near their knowledge or their scale. 
But if, if there's just like general YouTube stuff, please don't hesitate to reach out at any point. Next question. Mitch Hill, Wilmington, Delaware here on the panel. Is there a way to test your content before potential copyright strikes before posting it on YouTube? Yeah, there's a when you're doing the upload workflow on YouTube, a, after it uploads it and you title it and you go through it, there is a check step. And that check step includes copyright checks. So you'll see that flagged uh, before you put the video live, actually before it finishes processing or before uh, it, it becomes available for you to put live, you should have that checks run. Next question. James Fossily, Minneapolis. As a liaison, do you feel like a creator looking into the organization or the organization looking out to the creator? So I, I don't know if every liaison would answer this question the same way, but my original background was in product marketing. So I spent like 10 years doing that. Then I spent 10 years working as tech media. Uh, and now I'm inside. Then I spent like two years full time as a creator. So I really feel like almost like this, this, this balance point where both sides are sort of trying to find equilibrium. And I'm, I'm sure if I spent more time in one or the other, it might dip one way or the other, but I really feel like I've gotten to a point in my career where those two things are are just in sync at this point. Next question. Keely Dunn in Calgary, Alberta. When shorts recommendations aren't nearly as good as they are for longs, this is bad news for creators looking to find their audiences. How is YouTube addressing the algorithmic disconnect? So I think it's like shorts are rolling out and I think that's, it's always going to get better. Long form recommendations of always are, are always getting better as well. Like I said, we went from, uh, prioritizing clicks to prioritizing watch time to now prioritizing satisfaction and the personalization and the understanding just gets better and better. And shorts are a little bit different because people aren't making that choice. It's not a, uh, you don't go to the homepage, you know, or, or to the, like, to start scrolling through and then deliberately click on a video to choose to watch it. They're predominantly, you know, served to you in a feed. So I think as that builds out, as more and more people come out of the shorts platform and start using the shorts feed, I think that system is just going to get smarter and smarter as well. Next question. Kyle Hammond from Chicago. I still have a number of friends who don't subscribe to any channels, presumably because they don't see an advantage. What advice would you give to convince them for of a strategy for how to use YouTube more effectively? So it's, it's going to vary a lot depending on the person. One of the challenges that I personally have, because, you know, I'm like a longtime tech geek, is that I'm surrounded by a lot of other longtime tech geeks. If I go to my Twitter feed, everybody in my Twitter feed loves the mini iPhone, even though nobody bought it, uh, and loves like the, the subscription feed, even though very, very few people still use it. And any creator can sanity check that for themselves. They can go into YouTube analytics, into traffic sources, and they can take a look at it. Uh, and it surprised me when I did this because even people who are subscribed to me, the vast majority don't watch through the subscription feed. I, I think the last time I looked at it, most of my videos get about 50% views from subscribers, but only like 4% of them are actually coming from the subscriber feed. And I think like 1% are coming from notifications. And I think the realization is that as YouTube has just become part of everybody's lives, um, it's had to change from like where creators thought it was, where it was just like a few people and you'd subscribe to them and you'd only watch them. There's just so much content, so much competition, both on platform, across platforms. People could be watching Netflix. They could be, uh, you know, reading Twitter. They could be doing any of a, a bunch of different things. So if they see a notification come in, 
chances that they're they're like ready to watch in that moment are very low. Or when they go to YouTube for the first time, the chance that something really good is going to pop up for them in recommendations is really high. So I think it's like the convenience factor. Uh, people don't have to subscribe to still get shown the videos they want. And if you think about it more broadly, the chances of the video you want to watch in any specific moment being included in the very, very recent publication history of the channels you subscribe to is probably pretty low compared to the millions of videos that went live on YouTube that day. So just in terms of like, I feel like watching XYZ, someone might have made that who you've never heard from before and your subscription feed will never have that, but your homepage will. So I think it's just the reality now that uh, it's better to, to not think so much about subscribers and to think about new and returning viewers. Because if you can get somebody to watch one, two, three of your videos, they'll get recommended to the point that it, it doesn't matter if they're subscribed or not. They're just regularly used to going to that homepage and watching your stuff. Next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York says, Morning, Renee. For nonprofit organizations considering having a main channel, in this case, built, built off health, and niche channels, spinoffs based on subsets, for example, cooking, plants, and so forth, what are your recommendations for setting up and expanding reach? So that's a really good question. I, I would mostly test, like I would do it in a step-by-step -step staged out manner where you have that main channel and you can figure out, like you can look at your analytics and see why are people coming here. When they look at health, which videos are they watching? Are they watching across those videos? Because maybe your audience is fitness. Maybe your audience is diet. Maybe your audience is like look at all those things and test them and then figure out if you really do need to to create these other channels because maybe it's not different enough like maybe they're looking at you for a healthy lifestyle and healthy lifestyle includes diet and exercise and sleep and, and all these different things uh, but if they are looking at you specifically like if you've built fitness and like everything is an exercise video and that's what's popular maybe then it makes more sense but I would I would test those things on the main channel to see how well they perform and then start figuring out if you need to, and then when you need to split them out. Next question. John Snyder in Reno, Nevada has this one. What are the two or three practices that make the difference between an average and a great YouTuber? So I think the first one is really, like again, thinking of the audience first, thinking of uh, what video could I make that would absolutely delight the audience that I have. The people who like go into analytics, look at it, see which videos are really resonating, look at your comments, see what kind of comments you're getting on each video, and then prioritizing videos that you think they would love. There's a lot of times like people I think sometimes just say, I'm gonna put up any video and if people don't like it, that's they're being mean to me or the algorithm is being mean to me. And and the reality is you're just not considering the audience that you build. We all start to build our audience and then the audience starts to build us. And people can feel trapped by that it's a natural feeling, like the algorithm is forcing me to make these kinds of videos. This is not really a YouTube problem. Like, you know, like when Metallica made Nothing Else Matters, they were sellouts. You know, when someone goes and makes a video, like a, a type of movie, like maybe a romantic comedy when they're an action star, you know, they're breaking the barriers, you know, their audience gets upset with them. So it really is that just audiences have expectations. And if you don't care, if you're just doing YouTube for fun, doesn't matter, just do whatever you want. But if you really are in that, I wanna grow my YouTube channel thing, then it's gotta be a like a mutual respect relationship where you're making those videos for the audience and that audience is growing for you. So I think when, it, like when you separate it down, people who um, focus on making things that their audience would love are the ones who really see the, the exponential growth. 
in that vein, what kind of analytics or metrics should people be paying attention to as they're doing this more holistic view of the content that people like? Yeah. So if you go into the like YouTube analytics and you start looking, there's a section on which videos are growing your audience and it'll show you sort of like the top three or four videos and it'll say the level at which they're growing your audience, like high or moderate, and it'll show you low. And you can look at that. And again, I'm not saying don't make the low growth videos, but just make them like, like if you want to make them, we think they're important. Just know they won't grow your audience enough, but if you are or as much, but if you want to, if you really want to focus on audience growth, look at the videos that are high, even moderate. Those are the ones that are driving growth. Figure out what video would, like, can I make a new version of this, a spin on this? Can I make an, an easy follow-up on this? And then you can also do things like look at your audience retention. So YouTube has these graphs out where they show you how many people drop off immediately from a video and then how much they watch afterwards. There will always be a drop-off because some people just come back to a video and hit pause to comment or to grab a link or to do something. So you're always going to see a little bit of a drop-off and YouTube will break that out and say like you maintained 85% over the first 30 seconds or like 50% and then ask yourself why why did people drop off is it because I didn't immediately reward the click like am I thinking about my audience they click on my video it says like like the the, the one thing you need to know about the ATEM mini pro ISO like right now and you click on that and then you're like hi I'm Bob and here's my three second intro and why don't you go and subscribe and do and like 10 seconds later 20 seconds later the video hasn't even started yet and that'll teach you really quickly you know murder your darlings cut all that off and when they click on that video go this is the most important thing you need to know about the ISO I've got two more tips coming up but right now we're going to talk about the most important thing little things like that. And then if you go further in your video and you'll see like, is it relatively flat? Are there spikes? What are the spikes? What are the things that are holding interest? Is it a joke? Is it a pro tip? Is there something I did here that, that, that kept people coming? Are they skipping over sections of it? Like what are the drops? What are the, why are, why are they skipping over? Maybe I shouldn't do those sorts of things. And it's just, there's so much data there that informs you. And the other thing that I love is we're starting to try to experiment with things that don't involve numbers because not everybody likes numbers. Um, so we have these cards that'll pop up and it'll visually, you know, like in a, in a Tufty-esque manner, show you like, this is how many times your thumbnail was chosen on the homepage compared to others. These are other videos that your audience loves. And that's a great one too, because you can look there and see, oh, they love this video. I haven't made a version of that. Just because they made it doesn't mean you can't like make your version of that. So there's all those sorts of tools that you can use to sort of give yourselves feedback on your current videos and a lot of information about what you should do next. That was really helpful, Jeffrey. And this is where uh, this is where chapter markers and playlists really come into play, correct? Yeah. So chapter markers. Some people like worry that if you put a chapter marker and people will skip through your video and not watch certain parts of it and just like go to other chapters. But the alternative to that is them just clicking out of your video. So I try to think of chapter markers as like the safety buoy, where oh, you know, I'm not enjoying this right now, but I see this part's going to be really interesting to me. So instead of just closing this, I'm going to go over to that chapter and take a look at it. And then you can look in your retention reports and like maybe one whole chapter was something that nobody needed to know or like you didn't do a good job in and you could figure out how to make that more interesting and playlists are great too i would like suggest small playlists and really focused playlists like 
telling people to subscribe, telling people to like, these are all sort of lightweight signals. But like the best call to action you can do is towards the end of your video, right at the end of your video, don't give people a laundry list of jobs. Like don't don't say goodbye, don't like thank them, don't tell them to subscribe and go join, join your mailing list and check out your website and like and subscribe and share the video because like it's too much work. Just as the video is about to end, start segueing into, and if you want to know more about this, I have a whole video that dives into much deeper detail right here. And then make that a playlist that has top of that playlist, the video that you recommended that you think is the absolute best thing people should watch immediately after this current video. And then the next two videos that you think they would love after that. And then that starts promoting binging. And that one of the best signals for people really being satisfied with your content is wanting to watch more of it. So like using a playlist that's very targeted, doesn't have to be a public, like a playlist on your homepage, but just build out for each video, those next, next in line watches. And that'll start to become really powerful. Go ahead, David. I remember hearing that automatic chapter markers might be a thing. Is that a thing? Yeah, absolutely. There's a checkbox that you can choose to, like, I think it's on by default. You can turn it off, but it allows uh, YouTube and Google to make automatic chapter markers. And I think the biggest place you see that now is in Google search. If you go to Google and you search for a term and there's a video on it, you'll see key moments. And those key moments are the automatic uh, chapter markers that, that YouTube is trying to figure out for your video. Next question. David Brady, New York City. With all the hubbub about artificial intelligence of recent days, what kind of AI-powered YouTube creator tools can we expect to see in the future? I think we're seeing some already. Like if you look at a lot of the third party, uh, YouTube companies, they're starting to roll out, you know, AI coaches that sort of take a look at your corpus uh, and, and similar corpuses and try to highlight to you titles they think would be good for you or videos you haven't made, like the top 10 videos that, that you could make next or heat maps for your thumbnails, how to predict where people would look. So you can see if you're like scattering them all over the thumbnail or really drawing them into a a few key components. And some of them are also working like scripting, like doing the first draft for you. Uh, this the way sort of like ChatGPT is doing where you'll say, write me an Alex Lindsay video. I'm picking on Alex today just because it's so familiar to me. You know, write me an Alex uh, Lindsay video about uh, my how I got my Star Wars figure made. And then it'll give you like a first draft of that. And maybe it's terrible, maybe it's not. But if you have trouble staring at a blank page, like, like one of the people will tell you like writer's block, this, that blank page is terrible. It'll at least give you a fairly well done structure. Um, unfortunately, AI is as equally confident whether the information is correct or not. So the human still has to go in there and make sure that it is accurate and probably do a lot of work on it after that. But it gives you like that, that head start on I'm to stare at that empty page anymore. Next question. Eduardo Augustine down in Panama, South America says, I got to 1,000 subs on YouTube. How do I break through? Not sure how to move forward. So, I mean, like the nice thing is that like a thousand people is a lot of people. That is a large size auditorium full of people who are already there for you. So the idea is to figure out what made those thousand people subscribe. And you can go in and see which videos brought in the most subscribers to you, which videos had the most returning people to them, and then make more of those videos. Like if you're not breaking through a thousand, it's maybe those people who signed up, you're no longer making the things that they signed up for. And that's like one of the things is anybody who's a regular viewer, you again, you have that contract. It's like, I'm coming to you for this type of video. And if you no longer make it, 
they're probably not going to watch it. You know, like there's very few people, even celebrities, like there's very few people who will watch every single movie just because a star they like are in it. People are much more focused on topics. They might enjoy your take on that topic, but it's still a relevant topic to them. So just think about which videos were key to getting those thousand subscribers. Really focus, hone in on those. And that's when you start to get to 10,000 and 100,000 and a million after that. Next question. Alexander Knight here on the panel, Vancouver, British Columbia. How do how, I know how important analytics are to you. Do you find those new to YouTube tend to fixate only on subscriber count and don't pay attention to things like watch time? What's the most critical metric to monitor? So I think it's a combination of things. Subscribers uh, are important at the beginning because they unlock features. Like people want to get to a certain subscriber account so they can get, uh, you know, like a community posts or, or, or eventually get a play button. And also like a lot of the public, like the general public, it is such a prominent number that people uh, have uh, attributed a certain amount of value to it. So I'll never say like ignore subscribers. And also like having a good subscriber base is a really good way to see how your video is performing in, in the first few minutes and hours. But I think when you're looking at it holistically, uh, I would dive into traffic sources, not even like the top level, because like click-through rate, CTR, and average view duration, AVD, those numbers, uh, just as they're presented on the top layer, aren't that helpful. But when you go to the next level, like the traffic sources, and you see what's the click-through rate for search, what's the click-through rate for browse, which is the homepage and the feed page and a couple other things, notifications, what's the uh, click-through rate for suggested videos, which is like when your video is recommended next to another video, and you start looking at those numbers, it can give you a better sense. Like if you're making how-to videos and you're focusing on search, you probably want to have much more specific search terms in your title so that people who looked for that, your, your video is an obvious answer to it. But if you're focusing on browse, then maybe you want to spark like curiosity and you want to focus on like less a specific type and more of like an aspirational title. So it'll it'll give you a better sense of where you're targeting, what the result is, and then you can start tweaking from there. And I'd look at uh, click-through rate and average view duration, like retention for those things. And then later on, you can start getting into deeper things like average views per viewer and, and, and other metrics. Next question. Peter Rosado in Las Vegas, Nevada. Points of view on the algorithm have spawned many intense fellowship conversations online. He notes thumbnails, titles, and so forth. How would you explain it in layman's terms? So, you know, a friend of mine, Dave Wiskus, has this wonderful analogy where he says, like, the algorithm is a little robot puppy, and all it wants to do is go and find videos for you to love. And it's not it's not human, so it can't really understand everything that humans do, uh, but it tries its best to make you happy. And then when it does make you happy, it tries to find more of the things that made you happy. And that's, that's in essence, what the algorithm is. The algorithm isn't something that pushes videos for creators. It pulls videos for viewers. So anytime somebody goes to YouTube and opens the the homepage or, or opens the app, YouTube is going to, the algorithm is going to pull the videos that that it thinks you are most likely going to enjoy. There's going to be a video on that page that it thinks you're going to enjoy and you're going to want to watch. And so if you think about it that way, um, and that, that's based on personalization and, and what you've watched in the past and what other people who've watched similar things have watched, but you haven't yet. So if you think about it that way, like the algorithm's job is to find videos for viewers. You just want to be one of those videos that gets found. And that just circles right back into what I was talking about, about making videos that you know your audience is going to enjoy. Next question. David Paskin, Miami, Florida, here on the panel. I have my main channel with a respectable number of subs and views, but I started a new channel for my new venture, and it's growing very slowly. Should I have just stuck with my original channel? 
So yes, yeah, so that gets back to if it is the same topic, like this, if you are trying to reach the same audience, it's better to do it on the same channel. If you're trying to reach a different audience, it's better to do it on a different channel. But I, I wouldn't let that be a holdup. Like you should be able to, or you could be able to grow a channel, like a new channel as well. So I would also, if it is a different subject and it's a different audience that you're trying to reach, I would look at like the specifics of that channel and go back to like founding principles, basic principles of making great videos, packaging them in a way that's really, really uh, interesting and you know evocative, and then try to grow it from there. Next question. Alexander Knight, Vancouver again, does short form content devalue longer form content and perpetuate the ever increasing reduced attention spans? So, yeah, I appreciate those views, you know, and I think there's a, like, it just, for those of us of a certain generation, it'll, it'll bring back memories of like Max Hedrum and Blipverts. And this is something that like humanity has talked about for years. And I don't think it's too different from like, you know, oh, rock and roll isn't real music. You know, rap isn't real music. Television devalues um, movies. Uh, you know, short form movies devalue long form movies. Blockbusters devalue art house movies. Uh, you know, it was a Scorsese recently who just said like Marvel movies aren't cinema. You know, there's always going to be these sorts of hot takes and opinions. But I think there, these formats evolve because we have different sorts of needs and the ability to sit down. People will watch like, listen to a three hour, the talk show or watch a three hour Mac break weekly or be on office hours all day. There's a bunch of podcasts that are incredibly long that get millions and millions of views. So it, it's really about, is it like an ambient experience? Am I out? Am I working out or walking or doing chores? You know, am I, am I leaned back? Am I watching it? Uh, do I have 15 minutes to watch an amazing educational video or, you know, do I only have a few seconds? And I think all the different content types have evolved based on, you know, what's available to the audience. So maybe you only have a few minutes before the bus comes uh, or before your next meeting and you just, you can't get through a 15 minute video or you don't want to break it up. And then you could watch a few short forum videos, maybe get a laugh, maybe get a smile, maybe learn something. So I think all of these things are great and it's less about creating attention deficits. And I think it's, it's filling attention gaps uh, and that can happen in a variety of different ways in cross formats. Thank you so much, Renee. You have satisfactory attention gaps. Like you, this is an episode that I know that people will be rewatching and hopefully inspiring people to start a channel if they haven't already. I want to make sure that we give you the last word that anything else that you want to share with our community. Just, I mean, make videos. Like to me, I, I, you know, I've done blogging, I've done podcasts, I've done almost every kind of media imaginable. And the, the opportunities to tell stories, to give glimpses of life, to inform, to learn, to educate, to make connections, to grow communities. We, we can do it now in a way that was just never attainable to, to anybody previously in history. There's such massive potential. And no matter how many people are already on YouTube, if you aren't already, you still have a unique voice, a unique point of view, a unique set of videos that you could make. And if it's something that interests you at all, at least get in there and experiment with it. Because to me, it's just been beyond the best thing I've ever done. Thank you so much, Renee. And thank you to our producers. Like there were so many questions. We'll have to have you back, Renee. We, we definitely anytime, have to. Literally anytime. <laughs> thank you, producers. And to our panelists, thank you so much for your responses to our backend team for without which this would not be possible for us to be here every day. Tomorrow, we'll be talking about video pencils and squares and squares.tv. 
apps. And so Michael Forrest will return to demo video pencil. So I'm looking forward to that. To find the schedule for the rest of the week, head over to officehours.global. And how far did we travel today? 51, the Tullock Traverso, 51,000, roughly 52,000 miles. So that's all for now. We'll see everybody in after hours. Thank you all for watching. Bye. Thank you, Renee. Thank you you so much. 68 million bananas for scale. For all who are alive during YouTube, he's saying everyone gets their 15 million likes. That's at least a quarter billion minions. Somebody tip Renee off onto the whispering part of the show. We whisper at the end of the show. Is that an ASMR thing? No, it's worse because it's pointless. (laughs) Oh, wait. We're going to have so many shorts from this uh, episode today. So many. All right. We're off. Thanks so much. So many Canadians on the panel. Thank you. (laughs) Anytime. Thank you all. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye bye.